Today's episode of the Oil Can Podcast is brought to you by Remarkably Remote, a new daily microcast from GoToMeeting, all about making work from home work for you. With indispensable intel on how to stay sane, motivated, and productive at home, we're here to help you in this brave new remote working world. Add to your flash briefing on Alexa or subscribe on your favorite podcasting app. It's Alan Mitchell, along with Daniel Nugent Bowman, and let's get straight to our very special guest, Mr. Craig Simpson from Hockey Night in Canada, former Oiler, legendary guy, and an individual who never ages. Welcome to the show, Craig. Thanks for having me on, guys. Uh, listen, the first thing we want to get to, because it's on everybody's mind, we're all adjusting to the new world and the the uh, post-COVID uh, era and, and all the things that are involved with the coronavirus. How are you adjusting? Are, are you taking things in stride and, and uh, being able to, to make your way through the day? <laughs> yeah, I, I think as a family, we're doing our best. We're on uh, uh, 14 days self-quarantine as my uh, wife got back from... Uh, speaking engagement in Phoenix uh, the Thursday after everything happened. So we just sort of finished that up. It's been a unique two weeks, as uh, as I'm sure everybody's been feeling. But it's a time where you just, uh, you always say you can only worry about the things you can control. And uh, the one thing you can control is making sure you have a good day every day and stay positive and spend some good time with the kids and get reaccustomed to things around your house. So uh, I wouldn't say it's a normal two weeks, but it's one that we've handled well. And, and in all uh, aspects, I think the kids have handled really well too. It's a difficult thing for a six-year-old to understand why she can't have a play date. And, uh, you know, a 12-year-old uh, in grade seven, all of a sudden at home all the time. So there, there is a challenge there, but I think everybody's handled it uh, extremely well. Hi, Craig. Uh, Daniel Nugent Bowman here. And, you know, we had uh, Louis DeBrusque on uh, last week, and it's kind of a similar question for you. I asked Louis just kind of what he's been up to and what he's kind of mastered. And he was talking about, you know, uh, cards and, and Peloton bicycles and, and things like that. I mean, what have you kind of have you kind of uh, developed a new kind of love for something or, or figured out ways to, to pass your time in, in, in a unique well, way? Well, the day the, the days have gone, uh, you know, fairly fast. I, I think I've definitely... Uh, uh, been on our exercise bike more than normal because you don't get a chance to get out very much and, and do much exercise. So that's been a sort of regular routine. Uh, my wife loves working out, so she's on every day as well. But I, I think more than anything, just trying to get into a family routine, to do things with the kids, whether play some board games. Uh, ironically, my uh, our six-year-old, Samantha, who had never watched Harry Potter. We figured, okay, you got, you got eight movies there that could keep the kids uh, uh, occupied. And I think she ran through all eight of them in about five and a half days. And then literally, guys, I, I'm a little worried. She's, she's definitely obsessed with it now. Every morning, uh, it's back to Harry. So uh, th- that's been kind of a laugh for us. But uh, we, we've tried to have movie nights. We've, uh, you know, we live in an area that there is a back uh, walkway and it's not busy you don't see people so we try to get the dog out for a walk you know and get some fresh air for a little bit don't interact with anybody but uh that passes the time i think more importantly 
everybody's understood that this is the reality that we're in right now. So I don't think you can fight it or you can't be uh, feeling negative about it. You got to try to find something every day to, to be positive and to have some fun as a family. So has Harry Potter become your favorite movie now or are you? Uh... <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I actually, my, my older kids, uh, you know, grew up in the time where they came out. So I've been, this is sort of round two for uh -huh. me that uh, they all loved it and they all liked watching them. And so I've been through that. So it's been kind of a, uh, you know, a revisit an old friend uh, type of five, six days and uh, definitely well written, definitely well put together. So we'll have to see if we can uh, push her onto something new in the next uh, coming weeks, because it seems like we'll probably need something new to, to be excited about. Craig, the, the last time I saw you, this was in Edmonton years ago, you and your lovely wife had a kind of wine tasting evening and we, we spent a little time with your, yeah. your Stanley cup ring and with her, uh, uh, wonderful medal. Uh, and it was, it was a great moment. And I know you have a passion for that. Are you now? I also know when you have kids, things change and priorities change. Is that a still an area of interest for you? Uh, the wine yeah. business? Uh, no, actually, we sold the uh, uh, wine distributor about a year and a half ago. Uh, so I, I definitely uh, still enjoy the wine. <laughs> I just don't have to sell it anymore. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, no, that was one uh, partner and I, Brian Koshman, who's been a, a long friend for 20 plus years. Uh, we had that for about nine years and it was a good experience. Uh, I just think the timing of life and things where they were a couple of years ago, uh, we decided to, to sell that off. So, uh, you know, as I feel for so many people in small business and, you know, in hospitality, and I have so many friends uh, that own restaurants and that are in that business. And, you know, this is such a challenging time for them. And this is a time that we hope you can survive and be innovative and keep things going and, you know, keep the, uh, your employees going, uh, it's going to be a challenge for everyone. So in, in a lot of ways, I'm fortunate that I'm not dealing with that, but it's something that was, uh, was definitely a lot of fun. So Craig, I'd like to obviously switch gears to, to hockey, a, you know, com uh, you know, a topic that I think people are, are mostly interested in here, uh, uh, kind of take their mind off things. And, you know, from, from your playing career, you I mean, you obviously you started in, in Pittsburgh and you, you come over to Edmonton in, in a deal for obviously a great player in Paul Coffey. And what, what was that like for you to find out that you had obviously were joining a, you know, a very good team in Edmonton, but, but coming over for, for a guy that was uh, pretty well renowned here, what was that, that, that period in your life and, and coming over to Edmonton like? Well, I think anybody who has dealt with a trade, it's, it's always a little bit uh, unsettling and a little shocking, but it was not a surprise uh, after the Oilers won their Stanley cup in 1987 um, you know, right from training camp, Paul Coffey had sort of made it known that he wasn't coming back or they couldn't get to a, uh, a contract done. So right from the start of training camp, it was, okay, where's the most logical place for a player like Paul Coffey to go to? And clearly it was, you know, Pittsburgh with Mario Lemieux, the second best player in the league uh, at that point in just his fourth year in the National Hockey League. Um, so all the way through, I mean, we didn't have social media, so it was reading in the paper, not, uh, not, uh, daily updates, but every time that a deal was talked about, my name was coming up, you know, it was clear that it's a, it's a big deal and, uh, somebody had to go. So I, I used it as a, a motivator right from the very beginning. I, I thought, you know, the best thing you can do 
is get off to a great start. This was the third year in the league for me. I'd had a, a good second year. I think I had 26 goals and 50 some odd points. And so it's the year to really establish yourself. And mm-hmm. uh, I just felt that rumors are not, you're going to have to do one of two things, play the best that you can so that either the Oilers are going to look and say, this is a guy we got to have, and there's nothing wrong with going to the best team in, in hockey or the Penguins are going to say, geez, you know, we can't afford to get rid of them. So either way, I think I looked at it as a win-win for me, and that was a real motivator. And I I got off to a a great start in the season, and my last two games were on our Western Canadian swing where we played uh, uh, Edmonton on a night, and I had been playing some wing for the first time uh, with Mario earlier on, but that game I played center, and I had to play against Mess every night. And so you, you kind of got the writing on the wall saying, okay, this is a test. And I even remember looking behind the Oiler bench to, to Glenn Sather and going like, okay, we're 20 games into the season. Enough's enough. Either let me go. I think I had 13 goals in the first 20 games. So I was like, either make the deal or don't. <laughs> and uh, uh, I, we lost 4-1. I, I scored one, ended up on top of Grant Fuhrer. Uh, as I often did with goaltenders. And then the next night we played and we tied Calgary and then flew all the way back to Pittsburgh. And the next day at practice, the deal was made. So, uh, you know, it was kind of the culmination of let's either get this done so we can focus. And when the deal was done, you know, what an opportunity to go from a a non-playoff team that was an organization that was struggling financially and hadn't made the playoffs in my two years there to the best team in hockey with so many great players. So, you know, I, I think that's the mentality that you have to have, in my opinion, of, you know, look at the, don't look at a trade, uh, uh, you know, rumors as a negative look and say, Hey, I, I just, the one thing you can control is how well you play. And that was real motivator to me. And it was obviously a life changing deal, uh, getting an opportunity to come to such a great team and, uh, going from there and winning two Stanley Cups. As great as that team was, Craig, you were uh, immediately a big part of it, ending up uh, uh, having a 50-goal season that year, uh, the, the last order to do that, and obviously winning a Stanley Cup and, and really becoming a big part of a great team, uh, one of the few who had kind of joined and then stayed for for more than one. Yep. Uh, the, the Bob Sweeney goal is the one, or the, the goal you scored with Bob Sweeney crashing into you against Bob <laughs> Boston in 90 is the one that I remember, but do you, and maybe that's it, but do you have a goal that you remember? I mean, I, I just recall you filling the net upon arrival and really not stopping uh, unless you were injured uh, during your time in Edmonton. Well, yeah. Well, you know what? I, I, I think that was probably the only reservation I had about the deal was, you know, as I said to you earlier, I was 20 years old when the deal happened in my third year in the NHL and wanted to establish myself and hopefully become a star and be a regular contributor. And uh, I was on a great start in Pittsburgh. And my concern was going to such a deep lineup, you know, would I now not get the opportunity to succeed or, or get an opportunity to play a significant role? And the one thing I admired about Glenn Sather in the way that he handled, you know, not just me as a player, but but players in this organization was, understanding that and the balance of that. And when I came in, uh, I'm sure he knew, uh, you know, that this would be something that I'd be worried about going on a great team. Am I going to get lost in the shuffle? And now all of a sudden 
not continue on a good pace that I had going. And the first thing he said to me was, you know, I brought you here to help us win a Stanley Cup. If we're going to do that, I need you to be better than you've ever been before. And I'm going to play on the left side with Mark Messier and Glenn Anderson. <laughs> I said, <laughs> so, you know, when I look at that, I say, if, if you're looking to motivate a player and make sure that the opportunity is there, he, he took away any excuses I had to not be good or not be great. And he gave me the opportunity and he set down the expectations of what was there. And, you know, I've often talked about that in terms of laying out what you expect of your player and where you, where you hope to have him go. And I just thought more than anything, it just, I didn't look at it as putting the pressure. I looked at it as giving me the opportunity to continue on. And so I think that was a really big factor. Had I come in there without any real message from Glenn, it might've been easy for me to get lost a little bit or be on the third or fourth line. And then if I didn't score early on, you know how players are. It's, you know, it's not my fault. I'm not getting the chances. I think he took away any excuses for me not to come in and be great. And for me, quite frankly, guys, it, it motivated me. And that year, you know, was, was such a interesting one of going on to such a great team and having such great leadership, had a really good bond with my line mates, Mark and Glenn just opened me up with, you know, open arms and really helped me grow as a, as a player. And, uh, you know, I just felt that it was a, it was a great fix and one that definitely, you know, changed my life and changed my career. So how many complaints did you have with, when uh, Glenn, Glenn Sather said you're going to play with Messi and Anderson? Was that, uh... <laughs> yeah, I said, oh, that, that'll work. And, you know, the irony even getting to play with Wayne as well, I, I often got a chance on the power play to, uh, to play, you know, with Wayne in that position. And I can remember uh, a number of times early on I'd have a, a great opportunity and I didn't score. And, you know, he made such a great play. And I remember coming back to the bench once or twice and saying, you know, sorry, Gretz, I should have had that one. And after a while, he said, listen, forget about the stories. You know, you're not going to score every time. Just get out there and keep getting in the open and, and it'll happen. And, you know, again, that, that mentality of, of expectation every night to, to be relied upon to score, uh, I just found that it was, it was such an eye-opener going from a poor organization that didn't have a lot of great leadership at that time in Pittsburgh to this one, I, I just found I, you know, I was at the perfect age, 20 years old and was eating it up and just enjoying it. And, and then, you know, to have that success early on, that that team was such a good, you know, deep team. Uh, we went 16 and two in, on our way to the Stanley cup. It, it was really almost a time especially once we got past uh, Calgary in, in the second round that, you know, it wasn't a question of if we were going to win. I think everybody had the mindset that we were going to win. So, you know, that kind of uh, togetherness as a group and the excellence of those guys was, was really powerful. So it, it was a great, great experience. And, you know, unfortunately things changed and didn't last forever, but the most gratifying, as you were saying, Alan, is that the 1990 cup was you know, your first one's always special and important. The 91 for me was just probably the biggest moment. And, you know, that goal that you're talking about ended up being the Stanley Cup winning goal. Yep. Uh, but it was just a heck of a play by Glenn Anderson on a no-look reverse pass. And, you know, I, I just think the, the, the team camaraderie there and how much we pulled together when the expectation was that, you know, we couldn't maybe do it again. 
Uh, I just uh, that one probably meant the most to me uh, winning that one with with the group of players that we did. So, Craig, you you mentioned uh, Wayne Gretzky, and and obviously um, he's a guy that I've heard from from you know some of your. Uh, some other Oilers from that era, whether it's uh, Kevin McClellan or, or you know, Dave Hunter or whoever, that he just treated everyone so well on that team. And for maybe kind of talk a little bit about that in terms of you coming over to that team, again, for yeah. a guy like Paul Coffey. And I, I understand he had you over for uh, for Christmas dinner at, at his house. And just what, what kind of guy yeah. was he and how did he kind of welcome you to the team? And, and what was Christmas like at, at uh, the Gretzky house? Well, I, I think the, the incredible thing for for Wayne was his ability to, to really put everybody at ease and make sure everybody felt important whether you were just coming up from the minors and, you know, playing five, six minutes a night or, or you were a key guy uh, who's been around forever. It was sort of that same notion. I I've never met a guy, you know, with so much celebrity and star power who enjoyed bringing his friends and other people into the opportunity to share in some of those moments. Uh, and I think that's what really was special about him as a, as a teammate and the captain and, you know, being, I got traded November 24th. So, you know, we're a month in and it's Christmas time and he made sure, you know, come stay with, uh, with Janet and I, and the, the great story that'll just sort of cap off what type of person he was is, you know, especially for me as a, you know, a young player having success early on in my career, uh, getting a real sense of the things that were important from such a great leader. And Christmas morning, we, you know, spent the morning opening gifts and doing what families do and people do on Christmas Day. But after lunchtime, he just said, you know, come on, get ready. We're going to go out for a little ride and got into the car and unannounced to anybody. Uh, you know, he hadn't talked to anybody uh we drove over i know now you have the children's hospital back then it was just the u of a yeah. and he just said we're going to go visit some kids if kids aren't able to get home for christmas and their parents are there let's spend a couple hours and go there so you know to me that was probably the most uh impactful thing in the in the first month month and a half of being around him was in those moments you know we showed up at the hospital and uh, everybody was shocked to see Wayne and we just went around the wards and talked to kids and talked to parents and signed autographs and, um, you know, no fanfare. Nobody even knew he was coming. And I just said, for me, I remember saying to my parents, you know, that to me has more impact of what the value of being, you know, obviously a great athlete is one, but being a great person and giving back and, you know, that's something that's really stuck with me my, my entire, well, not just hockey life, but my life. And so that was probably the biggest early impact of, of seeing the kind of person that Wayne is. Craig, I, I wanted to, while we had a, a moment with you, to just ask you a little bit about the, you know, you, you came back after your career and you were an assistant coach here uh, in 05, 06 when the, the Stanley Cup uh, yep. run happened. And I and I wondered, because I've always felt that team, you know, we talk about the trade deadline and Rollison, but I, I really felt like Mike Pekka in the second half uh, emerged as more of the player who we thought he was going to be that year, uh, observing the Oilers. And, and I'm wondering if we can project, like, it, it felt like the team got better. They didn't have a goalie until late in 05, 06. And, and 
the current team seems to be ha, have turned a corner there midseason as well. And I'm just wondering, number yep. one, did you did you feel like in the second half, even before you got Rollis and the team was was kind of coming together? And and maybe if you you maybe see some of the similarities of the current team that they seem to be better uh, starting in January. Yeah, I, I think the team started to believe that they were a good enough team to be competitive every night. Uh, you know, I, I think the impact of a guy like, you know, you, you typically need you know, a star power of a player that kind of can build that trust and that belief in each other. And, you know, Prongs was starting to, to really uh, influence the team in that regard, the way he was able to make difference in the game. And then guys follow up and guys follow his lead. Uh, you know, interesting about Pekka, I, I know Mac and I uh, and Charlie and Billy talked a lot about him and thought, okay, we can give him a bigger role. And actually, he wasn't quite ready or fit into that role immediately. When, when we dialed him back a little bit and put him in less offensive roles and got back to a checking mindset, I think you're right. I think he started playing more like the guy we thought we were going to get. And uh, he started to play better. And so the belief as a team started to come along, uh, the, the deadline deals were important. Getting, you know, uh, back-end guys like Spotch on the back-end and getting Roley to come in. From a team, you know, we had times during the year where the team was actually playing all right. We just had some struggles with the goaltending and we couldn't get the saves. So you lose some games and you get down on yourself or down on the team. And I think once that stability started coming there, the guys just, you know, started to trust each other and play for each other. And I think it was a great exercise for the team to basically have to play, you know, must win playoff style hockey for the last two months of the season. And that got them into a position where I think they truly did believe that they were a good team. Forget about the numbers, where you stood in the standings as the eighth seed didn't really matter because we were playing much better as a group. And I think there are some similarities where your top players have sort of been the driving force here this year, uh, you know, offensively uh, they can win you some games and they've been fantastic to watch. That gives the, the other players a little more confidence and maybe a little more ability to, to get their game to a higher level to sort of uh, grab on, so to say, and, and try to play at a higher level. And, now, if you get some consistency and their penalty killing, I think was incredibly important this year uh, to allow them to stay and maybe win some games that they would have lost in the past. And I just think the belief I, I've always said, you'll never win the Stanley cup as a team until you can start really honestly talking about winning the Stanley cup. Like you can't kid yourself and say, we're a Stanley cup contender when everybody in the room knows you're not, or doesn't believe it or doesn't feel it. But you do get to a point where you can actually start talking about the playoffs and start talking about winning because you feel as a group that you're playing at that level. And I think that's an important hurdle to get over. And I don't know if this team is, is at that level yet or feeling that. But I know for our guys in 05, 06, you know, the mentality going into Detroit was let's get the plan. Let's make sure we execute it. But we got to beat them quickly because the longer it goes, their experience will get there. And I think that message from Mac sort of had the guys sitting up going, you know, he believes in us. We're talking about winning and winning quickly as opposed to trying to upset or stay in there. And I think that's the mentality that you have to have. And I think this team this year has grown quite a bit in that regard. And it would have been interesting. I don't know if we will see any playoffs or not, but 
uh, I think they were headed in the right direction anyway. So that that 06 team, where did when did that belief kind of kick in? Was it when you beat Detroit, and and did you kind of get a sense that you know you had guys like Fernando Persani scoring 14 goals, and there seemed to be a little bit of that uh, extraordinary factor kind of kicking in? Did that well, kind I, of, yeah. I think the Detroit series was obviously key because we were such an underdog. But right. I, I do think from the very first meeting where you know the mindset of the coaches was we'll we'll address. You know, they had the best power play in the league. They had the most points, the, you know, all the different things that they had. We said, we'll address that. But we just, as a group, have to believe that we're, we're a good team and we can beat them and we've got to get them quick. And if we don't get them quick, that's where their experience might get us. I, I remember even uh, game three, uh, you know, pardon me, not game three, game five in Detroit when the series was tied 2-2 and we were clawing away in the second period and we were, we were out playing them in their building. And I, I remember the feeling on the bench. I, I know I felt it as a coach, but you could start to feel the players getting the traction. Like we got these guys and they start to believe. And so uh, I think it was critical. Uh, let's not kid ourselves. The, the two quick goals at the end of uh, um game six to, to, you know, we were down by one, we tie it and then we score with what 50 some seconds left. That was huge because that's what Mac was talking about to go back to Detroit for a game seven, you know, they got the advantage, they've got the experience. And I, I think that's when the team really believed in themselves and started to chart their path and starting to not be afraid to talk about, you know, let's keep moving on here and the Stanley cup, you can start to envision. Craig, the we don't have you for much longer, so I want to ask you a little bit about the 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 year this year. I know the NHL wants to have a full year next year. We don't know uh, what the future holds. I know everybody's got an opinion about you know oh you could do this, you could do that. At what point do you feel like the integrity of the season just or, or playoff kind of loses it, and, and maybe we have to let it go? Well, I, I think those decisions are going to be made for us. And um, I, I just think that I'm looking around the world with how this, uh, you know, time frame has gone, uh, the way the virus has handled itself. Uh, in some cases, the lack of urgency in areas to not, you know, uh, uh, self-quarantine and be a part. I, I think it's going to be outside the control of the, uh, the NHL. I personally don't think we'll be playing. Uh, and I know that the league does not want to disrupt next year. So uh, to answer your question, I, I think there's no, if you're not playing by even a playoff series by the end of June, you know, you're, you're probably going to have to scrap it. And uh, I, I know I've heard you talk about some of the players in the last couple of days saying, let's just go with the playoffs, forget about it. Uh, I think in their mind, this is such a unique, unreal experience that they're going through. Uh, I think they just want to get back up to speed, get back into shape, and then just start from the starting gate with the uh, with the playoffs, the only thing on their mind. Not going through five, six, seven, eight games that are regular season. Uh, I think because of the separation, that that's the hard part mentally for them. But I hope I'm wrong, but I, I personally don't see us in a scenario that we're playing the end of, the end of this year. Craig, thank you so much. I, I have to tell you, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I know Daniel did as well. I uh, appreciate your generosity with your time. Uh, best of luck here, and hopefully I'll hear your voice on a, on a Hockey Night in Canada broadcast here soon. 
I hope so as well. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Fascinating conversation with Craig Simpson. And, and right at the end, they're talking a little bit about, you know, doesn't necessarily feel like we're going to be back in action here over the summertime. We're going to take a bit of a break uh, on the Old Can podcast. And we're going to come back and talk about that. And Leon Dreisaitl as the Athletics MVP. Uh, tournaments have been canceled. Leagues are suspended. There hasn't been a live game in, I'm going to say, a month, but I know it's less than that. It feels like a year. Uh, it's it's just a difficult time. Having said that, there's no better reminder of how important sports are to our lives than to take them away completely. The Athletic is still home to 400 of the best sports writers out there. And in these very, very uncertain, strange, unusual times, still working hard at excellent reporting and telling unique, engaging, informative stories. And in a way, branching out in a way that's never happened before. Uh, Todd Gurley and the Rams and their situation. Uh, the the NHL with the, the combine cancellation, the draft still to come. Where are we with that? Uh, the awards. Talking to Leon Dreisaitl in a minute. There's so much going on. It's times like this that The Athletic can help you keep connected to the teams, the athletes, and the sport you love. Sign up now for your uh, the creativity, the reporting, and the storytelling that sets The Athletic apart. If you go to theathletic.com slash theoilcan, you receive 40% off the annual subscription. Games aren't being played right now, but the stories that draw us to all sports, they don't go away. Go to theathletic.com slash theoilcan for 40% off an annual subscription. We hope to see you there. So, Dan Daniel, let's talk a little bit about what Craig said there at the end, because I thought, you know, you and I have our own opinions, and obviously you are are uh, talking to to folks in the league every day. But but opinion is everybody has one. But I thought his was interesting because, uh, you know, he's not a player; he's an observer. But he's saying, you know, just from a logistics point of view, this is going to be very difficult. Well, I mean, at some point they're going to, I would think, have to pull the plug. But I think there are so many different, you know, options or, or uh, you know, variables that, that could come into play. Like, you know, ideally, I, from the league's perspective, I would imagine that the playoffs uh, are the, the, the event or the time of year where you're gonna, going to want to play. I mean, uh, in, a per, in, you know, the, the course of a, of a normal season, which we're obviously not in anymore, uh, players don't get played other than other paid rather other than, you know, bonuses uh, in the playoffs. So that's where the, the, you know, owners really make their money. Um, and, uh, you know, on the same degree, you know, the, the NHL being such a gate driven league, you know, you, you really need to have, in my opinion, you need to have fans in the stands for those games. So, you know, if we're at a, a point in the world where, uh, you know, it's still, june or july or august and 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 it's not really safe to hold you know massive uh, public gatherings um do you pull the plug or do you wait till the fall and try to run run the playoffs and have a shortened season next year now i know uh, uh deputy commissioner bill daly was on the uh, two-man advantage po podcast with um with scott burnside and pierre lebrun and he said that the you know the 82 game season next year is is the priority but uh, you know, to me, the playoffs seems to be would seem to be more of a uh, of a of a money maker. But again, it, it, to me, it, it also depends on when and and how far you're pushing that, and and how that affects player contracts, and if you're actually paying them into that degree. Because, like I said, it's the playoffs where you you kind of make uh, your money. So maybe if you're pushing it too far, uh, you know, you get to a point where you need to start paying players again, and, and it doesn't really work out. So uh, there's just so many balls in the air right now, as I see it. But um, like 
I think ideally you'd like to to, to award a Stanley Cup uh, this year, but you know we we have no idea as to how far uh, or how long it's going to last. I feel like follow the money. It's a revenue league, and and they're down by like if it's a five billion dollar league, they're probably down by a billion. They'll they it's it's I think it'll go right to the that, my own opinion is it might be August before they cancel. It might be obvious before then that they will. Uh, but but they're gonna they're gonna run out every grand ball on this. It's a tough tough thing, uh, and you want obviously everybody to be safe. Wanted to ask you, Daniel, uh, as well in our short time. Uh, that we have left. Leon Dreisaitl was the uh, athletics a hard trophy winner. I was heartened by that just as an observer because I think that the, as as the season was wearing along and we got farther from December, that was you know my feeling. I thought Leon Dreisaitl had earned the hard trophy, uh, and and he had such a great year. Even though there was a little bit of a, a blip there. Uh, were you surprised, number one, that, that Leon Dreisaitl was the Athletics Hart Trophy winner? And were you surprised that he had the the clearance that he did over Nathan McKinnon in the voting? Um, was I surprised? Probably not because uh, it's a tough call. I mean, you know, you don't know which way voters are going to go. Obviously, some, some voters are uh, Eastern-based and, and see players more. Uh, obviously, uh, you know, with it being a Dreisaitl versus McKinnon, uh, McKinnon rather, um, vote in terms of them going 1-2, you know, those two Western Conference players. Um, but there's always that that factor of, yeah, uh, some of the underlying numbers uh, for Dreisaitl aren't great. Um, there's the, the, the talk out there that he plays a lot with Connor McDavid. Obviously, he did the first half of the year and, and still uh, does very well in the power play with, with McDavid. Um, even when he wasn't with McDavid, uh, he clearly got the two best wingers that the Oilers had in, uh, in uh, Nugent Hopkins and, uh, and Kyler Yamamoto. Uh, giving you know McDavid uh, not a lot uh, to work with, and and giving you know Drysaddle obviously a lot more to work with. So uh, there are those kind of factors. Obviously, there's there's McKinnon who's really led a Colorado team um, to a better record than the Oilers with not a lot to work with, in the sense that you know guys like Kale McCarr have been hurt, um, Landis Cog, Rantanen, Kadri go down the list, and he's 43 points ahead of uh, Kale McCarr, who's second on the avalanche. So that really speaks to to McKinnon's value on the team. Um, so, yeah, I was a little, I mean, surprised because, uh, you know, Drysaddle um, kind of, there's some things working against him. But in, in the same degree, I mean, he's, he's leading the league in scoring. You know, he, he did well without McDavid in the sense uh, of being away from him on the ice and also, you know, uh, leading that hit them, uh, the Oilers, that is, to, uh, you know, to a 3-2-2, two, and two, kind of a modest but respectable record when McDavid was hurt and sick. And um, he had 12 points in those games. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it does speak to his, to his value, but it was a very close vote. I mean, he, you know, we had 41 writers. He didn't even get uh, the majority of the vote in terms of the popular vote. I think it was about 39%. Uh, and he only beat McKinnon by, by three votes. So, you know, it was a very close vote. And um, that, I don't think, surprises me uh, because uh, I think both, case, both players, and as you go down the list, uh, Panarin, um, David Pasternak, and Connor Hellebuck had cases as well. Um, you know, he's, he, he's certainly deserving of being in the mix. And, and, uh, if he does end up winning the award, I think he'll be deserving, but I think a guy like McKinnon, um, you know, is, is, a, is certainly a respectable and, and, you know, worthy candidate as well. 
how heartbroken are you that the uh, NHL awards have been canceled? I don't think I was going to them <laughs> anyway, so uh, I don't really care. <laughs> no, I don't. I mean, I you know, I I'm not a Vegas guy, even if I if I did have to go. So um, you, you it might be a better question for for Leon and Drysaddle, and you'd probably need to give him truth serum because I don't think he would say his thoughts on the matter anyway. So just so he gets um, the award. Yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. I'm sure they'll find a way to give it to him if he does, in fact, win the win the Hart Trophy. And it seems like a, at least he's got the the Art Ross Trophy anyway. So um, he we need to get some kind of uh, award sent to him or, or in person. So um, no, I I won't be losing any sleep about that. There are bigger <laughs> things to, to you know in the world to, to be worried about anyway. But uh, yeah, I don't I don't think the uh, the awards were were my uh, were my uh, you know cup of tea anyway. So. Um, I don't know. What do you What do you think about the awards? Uh, I I'm I'm not. I like the awards presentation. I like, I'm very curious about them every year. But I, I you know, it, it's if you're going to do an award show, you better make it right. And it's so difficult with athletes because their their talent uh, isn't isn't public speaking, and it sure isn't telling jokes. So I, I think the NHL probably uh, dodged one here, uh, and and you know they they can give out the awards and take photographs like they did back in the days of Bobby York. All right, so Jeff, we probably have exhausted all of his patience with going way over time. Uh, we'll be back next week. For Daniel Eugen Bowman, I'm Alan Mitchell. This has been the Oil Can Podcast. Thanks for tuning in.